And the reading is taken from Acts chapter 7, starting to read at verse 2b to 16, and can be found on page 1098 in the Church Bibles. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from his sons, from his sons at Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Thanks be for God for this reading. The second reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 1. You will be found on page 58. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly 
increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy who is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It is true uh, that, um, as uh, Tim said, I was really wanting to come and see you here. I didn't know what he meant by magnificent church. Maybe the structure is not that good. (laughs) But the church is the community of God. It is the people of God. It is the people that I wanted to meet up with. You only need to look at the number of people going forward for ordinations from this congregation to understand what you are. You are a group of people who discern God's will in your life. And you work together to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And you love one another. And you welcome strangers into your midst. And that's what we are all about. Okay? And that's why I am in the midst of you today. I had a few churches I wanted to visit, and this was one of them uh, in the first few months. And I think I had a little bit of pressure from my previous secretary, my PA, Amanda, who was just retiring, no? <laughs> to make sure that I come to her church no? <laughs> in the first few months of my ministry. You're beginning a series of reflections or studies uh, based on 
the book of Exodus. If you begin to read the book of Exodus, you realize that this is about freedom. You are journeying towards your freedom. We will come back to that question later on, what exactly that freedom is. One of the things that you miss out when you begin reading the book of Exodus is the gap between the book of Genesis and Exodus. The events recorded in the last chapter of Genesis and the ones recorded in the first chapter of Exodus have 400 years between them. So you're talking about the story of God's salvation, but there is a gap. But how do we bridge that gap? I would say there is only one word to bridge that gap. That is promise. You read the end of Genesis. It is a record of Joseph's death. When Joseph dies, he reaffirms the promise of God. It keeps on happening in the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. All of them reaffirm the promise of God just before they die. They know that their life is just a little part of this whole journey. And they look forward and they tell their children, life isn't over. Our journey isn't over. The promise is still there to be fulfilled. And you lead a life that encompasses the aspirations, hope, and demands, and the requirements of the promise of God. So the, the book of Genesis ends with actually a reference to that promise. And even Joseph says, when I die, you bury me here, but you know this is not my last resting place. When you get to that land, which is promised by God, you need to take my bones from here and bury there. Looking forward, our journey isn't over. God's promise is still to be fulfilled. And God is faithful. Keep journeying. And that was the message every father, whether it is Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Joseph, passed on to the next generation. And then you begin to read the book of Exodus. You see how God is fulfilling that promise. In the very first few verses, you find about God prospering that community. God multiplying them, which was again part of the promise of God. Not just numerically. The words used there are very interesting. They were not only multiplied numerically, they were fruitful. And so we will come back to that to see what exactly the promise meant. But for the time being, to start with, you have that connection between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. This is all about the promise of God. But things go wrong very quickly. 
when Joseph died, his children were in a very good place in Egypt. They were recognized as faithful people. Their contributions were valued. They were given special honors by Pharaoh. But 400 years, fast forward, you find them now in a different situation. They are now being exploited. But as we focus on promise, I want to remind you about one mistake we make as Christians. Because we have this understanding that there is a big gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is a religion of law and works. The New Testament is a religion of faith and grace. Absolutely unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. The promise is the theme that runs through the whole of the Old Testament. What is promise? It is God and God's initiative. Not because of Abraham's merit or anybody else's merit. God just made a promise. God cut a covenant on his own initiative. Doesn't say anywhere that Abraham had some particular gifts and talents or some merit because of which God called him. So the promise is coming out of the grace of God. If you have any doubt, read the book of Galatians in the New Testament, where Paul makes it very clear, Abraham believed. And then he goes on to speak about the law, and he says, the promise came before the law. The promise is first. The grace of God is the first thing. That is the background of everything. The law was given to them for their guidance. After the grace appeared, in God's grace, God already called Abraham. God created a group of people, a nation. It's after that he gave the law. So the emphasis is never on law. The emphasis is on the promise, the covenant, God's grace. Okay. So get that actually quite right, you know. So our faith in the New Testament is something that was paralleled in the Old Testament. And before we move on to um, uh, talking about the promise there, I just want one more thing to be clarified as you begin these studies on the book of Exodus. We have this great tendency as Christians to overemphasize one side of anything. I was a lecturer for some years, and I used to tell my students, heresy is a good doctrine overemphasized. That's what happens. When you overemphasize something to the extent that you just ignore everything else that comes with it, you end up in heresy. The first few centuries, that we, we, that's what we had. Some people said, oh, Jesus was divine and they went too far. Some people said Jesus was human and they went too far. Okay. They couldn't hold both together. 
So when we read the book of Exodus, when we see God's salvific activity in the book of Exodus, how God delivered people, let us take it very holistic. We can spiritualize it and we, we are very good in doing it. We spiritualize Exodus, we spiritualize everything in our life. But Exodus, as an event, had political, social, economic, and spiritual dimensions. And as we speak about Exodus today and salvation of God today, we must recognize all those dimensions. This was not just about their spiritual life. They were oppressed as human beings. They needed to be delivered from that oppression. And there is an economic dimension. They were going to occupy a land. Land is very much a physical thing, an economic thing. But then there is a spiritual dimension too. Let my people go. What are they going for? To worship. So when you look at Exodus, please look at it in a holistic way, understanding all these dimensions, and even then understanding our salvation today also has all those dimensions. God is not just actually dealing with our souls as if he can just separate it when you come to a particular stage. So I don't, even I don't even appreciate sometimes the expression saving souls. No? God saves us. Not just our souls. God accepts us just as we are in our body, in our emotions. Okay. With our heart, mind and body. But even soul is not a bad thing if you look at actually how it was established in the Old Testament. You know where that word soul came first? In Genesis chapter 1, where, where it is said, they became a living soul. doesn't say that they were given a soul. Okay? Okay, Tim is sitting here as a body, then I give him a soul. No, Tim is a soul. Okay? So soul is actually just the whole human being in relation to God. It is a dimension of our existence. So let us have that holistic understanding when we read and study the book of Exodus. It is about God dealing with us, not just God dealing with us as a part of our life. Okay. Soul or spirit, something that can then be separated okay. from our life. Now, we don't have any existence without our body. The soul, I haven't seen a soul just existing on its own. I must have failed, but I haven't. Okay. You always exist in your body. And your body is also important to God. And so this deliverance is not just about actually something there. Deliverance is about the whole human person. And that is a challenge for us in our mission today too. As we proclaim the gospel of Christ to the people in this parish, we are talking to the whole person. We are wanting to see that the whole human being is redeemed. We want to talk to their life, their situations as they are. We speak to their emotions, we speak to their intellect, and we speak to their bodies. And that is the gospel of Christ. And that is coming from Exodus.
that is very much again biblical. And then actually you focus on the promise of God. How does actually God work out his promise in his children? Tim put it as actually the growth. Yes, I would probably want to start there. What you see is that God doesn't go back on his promises. God's promises are good in spite of impossible situations. What you find there is a kind of impossible situation. Egypt is becoming a kind of world power. Pharaoh is no longer just a little king. He is the kind of emperor. He's becoming actually the kind of power around every other nation there. In one sense, there is no hope for these people, a small group of people who are very faithful there, but now being oppressed. Maybe it is when there is no hope, we need to actually turn to see the promise of God working. How do we recognize God being faithful in fulfilling his promise when we find there is no hope? Exodus is a challenge. It is asking us to trust in the promise of God even when everything goes wrong. I have heard the story of Christians in China during the Bolshevik Revolution. It was a time of persecution for the whole church. And the practice was that every believer who confesses Jesus as Lord will be tied into a sack bag. So into a bag. You are tied in there. And then you are taken to the top of the hill and just you are rolled down. So all the sack bags going down, all these bags going down, but there is one Christian in each bag. It was equivalent of crucifixion for them. But the story is that as the group of Christians stood there watching their friends and family members rolling down the mountain, they held their hands together and sang, If ever I loved you, Lord Jesus, it is now. Trusting in the promise of God gives us courage and strength and confidence. Even in that difficult situation, where we feel that we have no future, I may not actually survive, but this faith still survives. I may not exist, but the church will still exist. It will multiply, it will grow. These believers, this bunch of believers were so convinced that their end is not the end of the church or faith. And that is the kind of faith God is asking us to embrace. Trusting in God's promise when there is nothing to hope for. You might probably have heard the, the hymn uh, when when peace like a river attendeth my way. I hope you know the story behind that. It was H.G. Spafford who wrote that hymn. 
He was a friend of D.L. Moody. Moody was a great preacher in America. Spafford was a very rich man, a wealthy man. But he lost everything by some bad turn in his business, real estate business. He lost everything. He became absolutely poor, and he didn't know what to do. That was the time he met up with D.L. Moody, and he became a Christian, and his family too. So Moody told him, actually, you need actually a break. And he said, I don't have money. No, we will gather some money. You need actually a break. You need to go to England or somewhere. So they planned a trip to England by the sea, definitely. And they booked the tickets for the ship. But for the last moment, for some reason, he was not able to join the family. So he sent his family ahead. He said, OK, it is all booked the holiday. You go ahead. I will join you once I have sorted out these things. Halfway through the journey, that ship actually sank in the sea. He didn't know anything at all for a few days. And then he got actually a telegram saying that saved alone from his wife, which meant she is safe, but the daughter's children have gone. And a few weeks later, he took actually a trip the same route. He went to actually, he wanted to come and join his wife. And when he came to that particular place, the other ship drowned. He went to the top of the ship, and that's when actually he sang that song. When seas like a river, a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever, my Lord, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We can sing confidently, even in a hopeless situation, when we know that God is holding us. He's still working out his word and his promise in our life. So you find the people, a very small community here, God multiplies them. The land was filled with them. That definitely takes you back to Abrahamic promise, no? You remember what actually God told Abraham. You will multiply. And not only that they multiply, they were fruitful, prolific, and strong. That's, those are the words used in my Bible. Depending on actually translations, I'm sure there might be other words which are very encouraging. God's work doesn't stop when circumstances are difficult. You look at what happens. Herod orders all the boys to be killed. Any Jewish child, any Hebrew child born should be actually killed because he doesn't want this community to grow. So he was trying to stop the growth. We don't want any more of these troubles, any more of these people. Let us actually kill the boys. If you kill the boys, it is fine. Girls, we can actually marry, so the actually children will be then fine, no? Okay. But boys, yeah, they're dangerous. If they grow up and they multiply, okay. so you kill all the boys, girls, fine, because we can absorb them into our community. They will become Egyptians then, no? 
But in spite of that plan, that clever plan, all the Hebrew boys were still born. None of them were actually killed. God works through some unexpected kind of sources. Two midwives there. Just two midwives. They're not Hebrew themselves, but they feared God. Don't know which God, which understanding, what understanding of God they had, but they were used by God. God works through unexpected means and unexpected people. God uses sources that we never pro probably would have thought about to bring about his purpose. Here is a king wanting to make sure that the number in the community is declined and makes a plan for that, but God works out his plan, still through unexpected sources and using people who were not even part of the Hebrew community. God gives growth, even there. In spite of adverse circumstances, in spite of our impatience, God still fulfills his promise. And later on, when you read the story in the book of Exodus, you will see that God works out his promises in spite of our rebellion and in spite of our unfaithfulness. God delivered these people. You're going to read the book of Exodus actually next few Sundays. You'll see that. But they were never faithful. They kept on complaining. They were delivered from Egypt. But every day they found something to complain about God, to blame God. But God doesn't stop fulfilling his promise. He doesn't stop loving them. He doesn't stop leading them to the freedom that he had actually promised. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. But this chapter, alongside the words of growth, then you find also the other side, the suffering, the groaning of the people. They begin to suffer. They were in a good position in the society, well-recognized, well-loved, but everything changes. And that's how it happens sometimes in the life of Christian communities too. You find here political changes that affect the faithful people. One king disappears or a generation go and then another king comes, he treats you differently. It's a political change. It happens in the world today too. There are certain countries where Christians are favored and actually well-established, but then there is a political change. Everything actually goes wrong. Christians are persecuted. But even through all these political changes, God remains faithful to his community. So what happens is that you lose your freedom. They made a positive contribution to the society, they probably took on the construction industry, it seems, no? They were all builders, I don't know. 
They were making their contribution to the society. That's what we are expected to do. But everything changes there. And you find also strategies to contain their growth. Like Pharaoh deciding to kill every boy child. So there are strategies working against the community of God. Political changes and strategies made by politics, politicians and you know, uh, sometimes others in the community. But in the midst of all that, Israel was expected to believe that God was with them. He worked through midwives there in the initial stage, and then he raised prophets, Moses and Joshua, and, and all of them. God has his ways of reaching out his people. But what I want you to notice is that God gets involved in the life of the people. The God of Exodus is a God who gets involved in the messiness of our life. In all that dire circumstances, there is a slight difference as you read on from Genesis. In Genesis, God looks a bit distant. Yes, he speaks to people occasionally, or he sends an angel to speak to someone, but there seems to be some kind of distance. But come Exodus, people begin to suffer. God is right in their midst. He has effective agents to speak to them. Even he wants to make his presence very much visibly seen through symbols and all that. We don't have time to discuss all that, but God is a God who gets involved with human beings. See, sometimes we have this understanding of God. We grew with. God is sitting somewhere up there in heaven. Okay. So there is a big distance no, between God and us. So we don't know how this God is. No? I heard the story of a, a little child who, who was asked to go out into the garden in the shed in the night and put the toys away. He just went out once and he came back in saying that, Mom, it's very dark there. Mom told, no, don't worry, Jesus is with you. So he went out and he came back again saying that I'm still afraid, no? It is all dark there, I can't go into the shed. And mom said, you got Jesus with you, you know that. He went back and came in third time, and when third time mom decided to speak about Jesus, he said, that's all fine, but I want to see someone with skin on. Because we need to see God with skin on. And that's what is happening now. God is getting involved in the day-to-day -day lives of the people, in the struggles of the people, in their agony, in their cry. God is there. It is that God we need to proclaim. Not a God who is dictatorial, sitting somewhere there in the heavens, watching over us, making decisions for us, punishing us, disciplining us. That's not the God of the Bible. It's a God who gets involved in the life of the people. And it is actually difficult as we proclaim the gospel for people to see God. Sometimes our expressions even don't help. I remember actually 
uh, a young lady who came to my office when I was a very young incumbent. Now, in my first incumbency parish, I was just 29. This young lady sat across my table and cried out her whole life. Abused several times in her life by people who were supposed to take care of her. She asked me the question, where was God when I was abused? You know that, actually. I just came out of university. I was a lecturer and all that. I thought, oh, I may have a rational explanation for all that. Nothing worked. I tried to say that God was around her or God was with her, and you know, or God is now with her. Nothing actually worked. At the end, actually, being so sort of helpless, I looked at actually the crucifix just actually hanging on my study, on the wall of my study. And that actually brought something different to me. And I told her, when you suffered, it is God who suffered. It's not that God is with you somewhere. It is not that God is there to pick up the pieces. When we suffer, it is God who suffers. Exodus is teaching us the same. The suffering of his people is his suffering. God is so involved in the life of the people. Our experience, our suffering, our tragedies, they affect God. It is God who is persecuted. And actually you find that in the New Testament, you know? Why do you persecute me? You know that question to Paul. No, he didn't persecute Jesus, but when you persecute the people of God, you are persecuting Jesus. Maybe we need to actually expand on that thought of God being abused, God being in poverty, God being persecuted, because God is not standing away from us. He is with us, experiencing what we are going through. Maybe I need to leave it there. Let us, in spite of our inability intellectually, hold on to the promises of God. It doesn't depend on our feeling. Sometimes people tell me, oh, I can't feel God. I said, God is not about your feeling. If you trust your feelings and emotions, probably you may not find him anywhere. God knows our inability to believe even. God knows that we are not capable of understanding him. But there is a challenge, a call here, to recognize that he is there, even when you cannot see him, even when you cannot sense him. Even when you do not find any sense of God's presence in your long prayers, when you feel so dry, God is there because He is faithful. He has made a promise that is essential to God's character and nature that He is faithful. doesn't depend on your response even. doesn't depend on whether we are faithful or not. He is still faithful. Let us hold on to that promise and see how God works out his promises 
in our midst, in our communities, in our church, in our fellowship, and in our own personal lives. Amen.